Hello and welcome to MindShift, a podcast about innovation from UCL School of Management. I'm Vaughn Tan, an innovation and strategy researcher focusing on how organizations can flourish and adapt in times of great uncertainty. In each episode, I'll speak to one of my colleagues from the diverse community here at the School of Management, and we'll look through the lens of their research to get insight into the rapidly shifting world of business today. Bilal Gökbinar is here with me today. Bilal is the head of two research groups here at the School of Management, Operations and Technology and Marketing and Analytics. Uh, his research focuses on product and service innovation through technology and operations management, and he also looks at digital transformation, exploring how small changes can make a big difference to businesses. He's applied this research to multiple fields, including healthcare, digital platforms, and robotics, and his work has been published widely in academic journals and publications such as Forbes and the Financial Times. Bilal, before we get started on your research, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? You started out studying industrial engineering, and I'm curious why and how you made the switch to management. Thank you, Vaughn. It's great to be here uh, in, in this podcast. I'm originally from Turkey, and like many other kids like who are good in maths and science, I think kind of getting into engineering was uh, like a pretty straightforward start, I, I would say. But after that, I quickly realized, you know, I'm not only intrigued by this kind of problem-solving aspect of engineering, but also the, the, the people side of things and, and really the interaction between the people and the organization, the systems, the technical aspects. And all of those, I think, that led me to kind of make that transition. I'm very much interested in this kind of innovation, creativity aspect of engineering, and I'm mostly studying uh, engineering or technical organizations and how um, they can perform better in, in different ways. And would you say that your early training in engineering is affecting your approach, not just in terms of who you choose to study, but how you choose to study them? Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, well, first of all, I am, as you mentioned, you know, I'm a professor uh, in operations uh, and, and innovation management. And really part of that is maybe coming from this engineering background, I take a very kind of micro perspective on things. I really look at operational things, how exactly people are doing their jobs and how can we improve that. And so definitely this engineering training, I think, uh, helped me a lot in really looking at those, taking a closer look on actual happenings in organizations, maybe rather than just high level leadership questions, etc. So a very grounded sort of approach to thinking about what to do research. Exactly. Fantastic. Okay, so recently you've been exploring this concept of frontline innovation and how internal mobility of employees can boost it or affect it in some way. Could you tell us a little bit more about these concepts and also how you came to study them in the first place? Uh, well, frontline innovation is basically innovation that's, that's introduced by people who need it in the first place, people who are experiencing problems, people then kind of really coming up with and identifying solutions to their problems. And in organizations, frontline innovation is typically the kind of innovation that's not coming from your research scientists or R&D departments, but really the kind of innovation that's coming from your frontline employees, like the engineers, the technicians, the assembly line workers. And, and that's really the kind of innovation that we wanted to study in, in this particular project. And actually, if you look at many of today's companies, a significant portion, up to 70-75% of innovation and productivity improvements, they do come from those maybe sometimes minor-looking innovations that are introduced by frontline employees. So that's the frontline innovation. 
And mobility is really, I think, as we understand, it's employees visiting different different sites in an organization, spending time. But it's really the mobility is um, having a, a mobile workforce. It is some of the, your workforce moving uh, across different uh, sites and locations uh, within a company. So for our listeners who may be less familiar with um, sort of the frontline innovation concept, is it something building on this idea from Toyota way back about Kaizen coming up from people working on the production lines and finding ways of optimizing the way they produce stuff? And Mm -hmm. what you're doing now is like pushing that to the next level? Yeah, exactly. Fantastic observations. Toyota has been at the frontier of this kind of innovation where it's really the employees that are uh, kind of pushing the boundaries of, of the knowledge of the work and really giving them the freedom and, uh, and in a way responsibility to come up with the ideas to push their, the, the system to make it more efficient, to make it actually more productive. And really, we are seeing that being implemented. Uh, we have been seeing that for a long time. But now a lot of organizations are realizing actually how critical that can be for your frontline employees to be at the frontier of this this innovation process. Very cool. And so you were saying that, in your opinion, at the moment, maybe even the majority of innovation that corporations are able to use is coming from the frontline. Is that the reason why you're interested in this area of innovation generally? Or are there other reasons as well for why you're studying it? Well, absolutely. These are the kind of innovations I feel, uh, okay, R&D departments, they are great scientists and, and that line of innovation, it's definitely very helpful. But then I feel actually there is this uh, kind of really underrated aspect of this frontline innovation that's been introduced by your everyday workers. And I think it is important to understand. Uh, I mean, we have anecdotes, but in our case, we as researchers, we thought it will be a good idea to start studying this in a systematic way by quantifying the effects of this innovation and understanding the boundaries and conditions where it can be a feasible option and where it can really lead to significant improvements within a company. One of the things that you said earlier on is that your engineering training really made you focus on very practical operational research questions. And so I was curious whether you can tell us a bit about the difference between the formal academic research that you do and the industry work that you do in this area? Like, how would you think of the difference between what you're doing in kind of formal academia versus industry applied research? Well, first of all, I feel very fortunate to be an academic where, you know, I, I work on questions, on research questions. I can get to research them in a, in a scientific way. But at the same time, being an, an academic in a business school, it is important. I think it's very important to really study questions that are relevant, that can make an impact on organizations. As much as I can, I try to combine the two in a way when I am studying an academic problem, I always try to start with a practical relevant issue experienced by the companies uh, and I try to get actual industry partners. That's how I started even back in my doctoral work. I was working with a large auto company in the U.S., And since then, I tried to find industry partners in undertaking uh, kind of projects. Obviously, there are differences like in academia, we have very long time uh, lines, you know, like we we start a project and in maybe two, three, four years time, it can lead to a publication and academic output versus in industry. Obviously, timelines are much tighter. You really need to get things going and then you really need to produce something in, in a few months time. But I think really finding suitable partners, and I have been very lucky to to find those so far, uh, I think that really helps a lot so that, uh, so ideally merging the two would be, I think, the ideal 
combination. Let's actually move to focus about your work on internal movements of employees. Could you just tell us, summarize for us the mechanisms by which you believe this actually helps with making the company more innovative in various ways? Like what's actually happening when employees Mm -hmm. move around that helps with innovation? The kind of benefits it seems to be generating is in in two primary mechanisms. One, when you have employees working and and moving to other other locations, there's this short-term benefit, what we call transfer of knowledge and maybe just figuring out low-hanging fruits and just sharing some maybe good practices, which is pretty intuitive, I would say. But what we didn't maybe, what we weren't expecting was really the the magnitude of the effect. That's something that uh, really in, in terms of like a single move, can generate as much as uh, like 100,000 euros of benefits by these employees. So I think that was the first one. And second, what we realized was these employees, when they move, it's not just the short-term benefit, but then we observe really a significant long-term benefit in the sense that they, these, these individuals, they do become better innovators. So what we call this, they get to, to experience this conceptual learning meaning that we call these kind of know-why, not just know-how, not kind of just to the implication of what you do immediately, but really the root cause of this deep conceptual theoretical understanding of how things are, are working. So in a way, these moves, they make these individuals better learners and better innovators in, in the long run. Can you tell us just a little bit about the context? You know, like what kind of company is it and what does it do? This company is a, is a large, uh, like a multi-billion business supplier to auto companies. So this is a large auto component manufacturer. And in this context, it is really the margins are, are, are slim. Uh, you really have significant competition. So in order to remain competitive in this marketplace, this, this company uh, earlier realized that it is very important to keep that innovation edge, keep it active and, and find ways to do it in a systematic way, in an efficient way. And part of, of that was actually they had this innovation database where anyone in the company can suggest these ideas, submit ideas in, into this database. But then again, one novelty we have observed was it's not just ideas submitted and casually looked at, but really ideas seriously evaluated and putting a kind of a euro amount into each suggestion and then trying to implement those afterwards. So it was a very systematic approach. Uh, and then workers, they realized that their suggestions, their innovation ideas are not just kind of skimmed through, but they're actually seriously taken. And I think that was also a, a very important aspect of the, the whole process in this case. Very cool. So I, what you're saying is that not only do you need to have the kind of internal structure that lets employees move around inside a company, the company also needs to have a structure and a system for evaluating and absorbing these innovations when they bubble up from the bottom. Something that you said actually really resonated with the research that I do. One thing which I focus on a lot is tacit knowledge and how you learn it. And it occurs to me that one thing that you're saying about the difference between knowing how and knowing why is that know-how is something which, I mean, is also tacit knowledge, but knowing why, you know, the, the broader context of why a particular solution is a good solution for a particular problem. That's something that really, in many cases, can only be really viscerally understood by a person if they're in a situation and are exposed to the situation that creates the problem, right? So do you think that the internal mobility is also something which naturally helps with 
other forms of tacit knowledge learning and transmission inside the company as well? Yeah, absolutely. So what we really observe in this case is when you move people around, and actually a key condition was also in our case, it's not just like work trips or just some observations or training. These guys, the kind of mobility that, that we observe in our com- in the company we studied is really these guys, they go, they go and work on a specific problem. They are there for a reason. It's not for like a casual kind of work trip, but really there is a problem. Actually, they are called for that problem in, in, in the first place. Uh, and, and when these people move, they not only observe what's happening, but they actually work kind of shoulder to shoulder kind of, you know, uh, with, with the workers in, in the plant or in the, in the site that they are visiting. So it is really those, I think, those interactions that are meaningful, that are deep, that are on an actual problem-solving task. We believe these are the key reasons why we observe such, such huge improvement from the ideas that are generated afterwards by these, by these individuals. That's actually completely consonant with my own findings as well. Like when I study restaurant R&D teams, the ones that are really effective are the ones that do the R&D work as well as the reduction to practice with the teams that are actually implementing the new product that is being developed. So this idea that you work shoulder to shoulder with the people who are facing the problems so that you have better solutions that are informed by a full context rather than a very limited definition of the problem, I think makes complete sense to me. So I think moving into sort of thinking about the benefits, you've already alluded to some of those. I can imagine that employee mobility of this directed, very productive type that you're talking about might be very beneficial for both the company as well as the employees, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- that's a great point. So it really, is, as you mentioned, really the two kinds of benefits we observe is both first to the company itself, obviously. And remember, this is a hugely competitive industry. And oftentimes, actually, these guys, when they are getting, like, say, uh, some contracts from the auto companies, they really put very little margins in, in terms of the contracts. But then they trust their workforce. They realize that actually, okay, this is the initial cost for us. But then we trust our employees and we give them some room to to innovate, to improve maybe the kind of materials we use or the kind of processes we employ. And it is really, I think the benefit is significant in terms of remaining competitive in the, in the marketplace because they know that they can do better. So their initial estimates, they know that they can always improve on those. So, so that's why I think they have been extremely successful in, in getting contracts, in, in being basically a leading supplier in their industry. So that's to the, to the company. And to the workforce, as you can imagine, uh, these, these employees, they do realize that what they suggest, their ideas, they are making a difference in the company. Uh, and one thing actually that may be interesting to, um, to observe here is there is no formal rewards actually to these ideas. So you suggest an idea, it's successful, it's implemented. It's not like you get some formal bonus or, or anything. It is, it's just part of their culture. I think that gives, that empowers the employees as well, which I think is, is, is quite significant. Uh, and ultimately with these moves, as I mentioned earlier, they do become better learners. They do become better innovators by sharing this knowledge and, and by really working on the problems that may be slightly out of their comfort zone. But then it is when they work uh, next to other workers there, then I think it's really you get to see, I think, a significant benefit in terms of the engagement and interactions, which I think is ultimately keeping this workforce, uh, I'm sure, quite happy and satisfied as well. And I think one thing which you mentioned that I want to really highlight as well, which I really believe also, it's that if you move people to a context that is slightly different from the one in which they are very habituated, they're very comfortable and they become slightly uncomfortable, 
that discomfort actually makes them better learners, right? Like they become more used to the idea that it's not always supposed to be that you're comfortable all the time. It's that when you're uncomfortable, that's when you learn. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. So I think earlier you mentioned some things about when these kinds of mechanisms that are underpinning the benefits of internal mobility are seen and when they're not seen. I would love for you to sort of unpack that a little bit more. When do you find this kind of internal mobility to be most effective? You you mentioned that when it's focused on a specific problem, so it's not some kind of random moving for movement's sake. Are there other circumstances or conditions that you have found make this kind of internal mobility more effective? And also, when is it not effective? Yeah, actually, this is also related to your your last point on making kind of maybe people a bit uncomfortable. But I think that's the key key thing, uh, like maybe a bit. What we observe actually in our case is the real benefit you get is when you have sites that are somewhat different from each other, uh, let's say from a peripheral manufacturing plant to another kind of peripheral manufacturing plant where there is some variation, but what we call this related variation in in the kind of tasks, in the kind of maybe products and processes that you are dealing with. When it becomes too unrelated, when the similarity between the sites are are too far, then it's actually we don't really observe as much benefit to to these kind of mobility and, and exchange. And I think that's quite intuitive because people do learn and I think it really helps the, the whole innovation process. When you experience some related variation into the products, the context, the systems that you deal with. But then when you deal with, with, with a system that is too far away, it's just there is not much. It becomes really very difficult to transfer or to really implement any, any things that you observe there. And actually, we feel that that's a significant in a way, trap that we observe in organizations, typically in manufacturing organizations, at least. A common practice is you send your, let's say, peripheral site people to the headquarters or the, your main factory so that they can, quote unquote, learn the way to do things, etc. But we realize actually those are really the, the least efficient moves because it's just very different. The kind of products, the kind of systems that you are dealing with in a, in a peripheral plant is, is very different than a central kind of a leading plant. So what we observe is the significant benefits you gain is when you move someone in, a, in, a, in one peripheral plant to another peripheral plant where they are still dealing with this kind of similar kinds of processes, maybe similar kind of products, but then there's lots of learning opportunities still. So kind of one thing we advocate is actually based on our research is maybe companies should start maybe rethinking about these internal moves, either from central to their peripheral locations or vice versa, but really think more closely about these more peripheral moves or people from more similar locations to reap the most benefits. I think that that's a really interesting insight that has, I think, really clear practical implications. But I wanted to push on that a little bit and ask the question, which I think maybe will be coming up in the listeners' minds as well, which is that if you move someone from a context that is very different from the one that you move them to, there is a much higher chance that there is difference of experience that will lead to more sort of diversity of information transfer, right? So there's probably some trade-off between how different the origin and the destination sites are and how much learning is possible from that move. And so is what you're advocating to find some kind of optimal point between the two so that not only from a discomfort perspective, but also from a potential for learning perspective, you're optimizing for the both of them? 
That's a good point. And it's very hard to be kind of, you know, too prescriptive in exactly, right? Like what is the right level of relatedness or, or, or similarity? But I think our research gives some food for thought for organizations where without maybe thinking uh, about the implications too much, we have this, okay, let's send these peripheral people to the central location so they can learn the, the frontier kind of practice. But then that frontier practice may not necessarily kind of benefit them, at least kind of immediately. So that's why I think basically in our research, rather than giving a very kind of like a full-fledged prescription, I would say our research gives some insights into where kind of this mobility maybe companies can can rethink about their mobility practices. And, and one thing we observe is clearly the effect that in terms of the innovative ideas and the impactful ideas, we have seen the most impact in those really similar site moves. It doesn't mean that there is no benefit in the in the other moves. There was some benefit, but just it was much smaller in comparison to those peripheral to peripheral moves that we observed in our in our company. I think so far what you've been talking about a lot has been an auto components supplier and manufacturer. And I think your research so far focuses a lot on manufacturing and the auto industry specifically, how much do you think your findings can apply to other types of organizations? You know, like how much can you take these insights and apply them to organizations in different industries, maybe organizations in the same industry, but in different countries where the cultural norms of working are different? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's a good question. I think in terms of to what extent our findings may apply to other organizations, I think manufacturing industries where you have a significant workforce on working on technical aspects of things. So a lot of frontline involvement in, in, in actually setting up processes, in improving processes, etc. I think that, that that can apply to, to a large variety of manufacturing industries. In terms of other industries, I think there are a lot of similarities. If you think about it, really mobility is, is, is a concept where we observe, like even as academics, right? We do have sabbaticals. We do go visit an, uh, other universities for short term or for a longer term. And it's really kind of what we observe there. Uh, like one thing actually with my co-authors, Philip Cornelius, he's a former PhD student in our school. Now he's a, an assistant professor at Rotterdam. School of Management and Fabian Stick at, at University of Cologne. You know, when we discuss these observations, these findings that we had in in this context, a lot of times we were thinking about our own academic life, the sabbaticals, how these moves can can actually make an impact. And, and I think a lot of people can relate to our findings in in different contexts. In service industries, I think it's it's also similar to some extent. So really, the idea of mobility and the short term benefits. And really longer term benefits in terms of this conceptual learning, kind of novi understanding, we feel are quite broad concepts that can apply to different industries uh, and different contexts as well. But we are hoping to conduct some maybe field experiments with potential companies to actually see to what extent it, it will apply in, in other contexts and other industries. So I think one of the things that obviously is at the top of everyone's minds right now is this problem that we're facing in the, well, not even the aftermath, we're still in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. So how do you think organizations can deal with the problem of using internal mobility as a tool for creating more innovation or more innovative organizations, given this new situation that we're in, which may become the new normal? Like we may simply not be able to travel as much in the future or travel may become less automatic and normalized in the future? 
So what do you think the implications are for um, your research and the application of it? Yeah, very good point. And and it is indeed, I mean, these are probably not easy times to advocate kind of mobility. And actually, maybe finally, um, when we had this research paper and, and findings, uh, we contacted one of the kind of leading practitioner magazines uh, about our article, about our research. And the response we got was, well, look, I mean, we are in the middle of COVID and and, uh, and you are suggesting we should advocate mobility. Sorry, we cannot really have it this at this time. And this is understandable, obviously. Uh, I think a lot of us, a lot of organizations, they do realize mobility has its limitations and especially post-COVID. Maybe companies need to be more selective, right? Business travel as we take for granted. And I mean, even before COVID, I think there was some discussions about, is that really all the kind of carbon emissions, all the, the money, is it worth it? And I think there is no easy solution for that. But one thing we observe very clearly is mobility matters, and it, it does help companies in a, in a significant way. So maybe it doesn't mean that companies may have limitations in terms of how and to what extent they will keep maybe employee visits or mobility inside their organizations. But I think what our result shows is, is twofold. One, it matters and it really can help, it can provide significant and maybe sometimes unseen benefits to organizations in terms of innovative ideas, in terms of solutions that these provide. And second, as I mentioned earlier, what we observe is some moves are just better than others, at least kind of in, in terms of the impact. So maybe what we suggest is there can be kind of this strategic thinking about mobility Another thing is actually, this is, remember, this is mobility about frontline workers, like your engineers, technicians. And typically, I would say in, in many organizations at least I have worked with, there is this feeling that, okay, business travel by high-level senior managers, executives to get the deals done, etc. That's important. That's critical. But I think they don't maybe necessarily realize as much and, and how to what extent they say maybe middle kind of workers or kind of frontline workers, how their moves their mobility can significantly benefit the, to their company. So I think that's really important to maybe take a closer look and maybe a, a plan for setting up your mobility and internal kind of movements inside your organization. Excellent. I, I wanted to sort of go a little bit deeper, as they say, double-click. The thing which I wanted to ask you about is this question of virtual mobility in the sense of putting someone from one team into another team but doing it virtually on Zoom or, you know, through teleconferencing or some other kind of remote work. How do you think this works in the context of your particular setting, which is for frontline workers, you know, where the thing that they do is usually it's embodied, it's on site, it's in a particular location. Mm -hmm. Is virtual mobility possible at all for this kind of thing? Well, in my opinion, again, I think it's probably, I think it's, a, it's an excellent research question. I think it's like it calls for a proper research kind of study, I think, to investigate. But as far as I can tell, based on, on the insights we gain from our study, I think it's very hard to replace those like really actual physical interaction that you, you have when you visit a, a certain location, right? When you work with these individuals next to one another. But having said that, um, I mean, there are limitations even right now, right? There are lots of travel restrictions faced by companies, faced by uh, different organizations. And I think maybe in the presence of that, companies can, can start thinking about maybe more, more carefully on this kind of what you call virtual mobility. And one thing, for example, I think that can benefit a lot is, again, I cannot emphasize enough how really working on an actual problem, it's not just 
some training, not just some passive observation. So I would say, actually, if there is no other way to do that, then if you are doing virtual mobility, you better make it actually worthwhile by not just doing some, uh, let's say, team building exercise or some cool kind of social event, but actually give them an actual real problem and let them work on that next to one another. I don't. I think, again, it may not be the same experience as working in, in physical presence, but I think in the absence of that, the next best is probably to work on an actual real problem. That's probably one insight I can provide based on our understanding in this study. What are some good structures that you would like to see for organizations to set up so that they can absorb frontline innovations better? Well, I think one thing that maybe is is somewhat underestimated, I think, in in, in many contexts is, is really, first of all, your frontline workers, they can be a significant source of competitive advantage and, and innovation. And to do that, they really should feel empowered. And that's what we have seen, as you mentioned earlier, in Toyota. This is an issue that uh, when I talk to companies, okay, everyone talks about big data, machine learning, robots, automation. But oftentimes, I mean, no machine, no kind of big data will replace individuals in terms of really coming up with ideas and solutions and innovations. And actually, we have seen that, for example, in Tesla, Elon Musk, right, when they start experiencing lots of production problems in uh, Model 3 in in their plants, uh, which was actually fully automated, like which had the the highest robot intensity, part of that was actually uh, they didn't have enough individuals to to deal with these things or to come up with solutions. He posted this tweet saying humans are underrated, kind of excessive automation can hurt a company. We shouldn't really look for these shortcuts or, okay, robots or, or automation will solve our problems. No, it's really our, it's the humans, it's the frontline workers who will solve your problems. Well, it's great if you can make use of the digital technologies automation, but I think really empowering individuals and giving them that sense of responsibility, that, that's I think what Toyota did like say 50 years ago. And, and now really, if you look at the companies who are successful, they are the ones I think where they empower the employees, they, they, they expect employees to, to come up with solutions. I guess the last question is, and this goes back to this idea of the new normal that we're in, what is the one industry you think we should be taking a look at and why? That's a good question. And uh, I mean, a lot of my work has been in auto industry and others, but more recently I have been doing some work in in, in the healthcare domain. And I think it's one of the, the, the key industries where I think we have seen a lot, especially, you know, just it's been, I think, kind of mind boggling the past few years, all the needs, all the kind of demands in, in our healthcare systems all around the world, right? Both developed world, developing world. But then I think we have seen some very good, I think, examples of frontline innovation. Uh, medical doctors, not really some, some innovation team, kind of suggesting some improvement, the way that they connect with their patients, the way to, to do things. And I think there's a lot more room in, in innovation, in frontline innovation, especially I think in the healthcare delivery uh, domain. We have seen heroic efforts. We have seen some strong improvisation i think very i think very creative solutions but i think we should really try try to make those more systematic and and hopefully for longer term benefit i think now a lot of things we have seen where uh, i think people realize there are opportunities to do things in a, in a bit differently maybe kind of taking a, a more open-minded approach in, in certain things. 
I think maybe you as like myself, now all the kind of the, the digital tools, the uh, kind of the mobile solutions, etc. I think this is at the, this is the next frontier. And I am sure there will be lots of exciting developments that will be happening in the healthcare sector in the coming years. Fantastic. Um, Bilal, thank you very much. That was super interesting. I mean, I, I've known about your work for years, obviously, but this is, I think, the first time we've ever had a deep dive into one core area and really sort of tried to pull apart some of the implications, not only for research, but also for practice. So thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Juan. You've been listening to MindShift, a podcast about innovation from UCL School of Management. Today's guest was Bilal Gokpinar, and we'll put links to their research in the show notes. This episode was presented by myself, Vaughn Tan, edited by Karis Bradley, and produced by UCL School of Management. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts, please subscribe to MindShift on your favorite podcasting platform.